your memory. None of the, thank you. None of the scriptures or things I'm going to share with you are things you have not heard. But I hope that it will spark a sense of knowing, always knowing, that God is with you and to be grateful that he is. This message today came about for me. I was watching um, a Karis uh, program, the Daily Bible Study. And honestly, I cannot remember um, the message that I listened to. But the commentator at the end of the message made a statement that kind of struck me. And she said it reflected on the message that had been given that day or the teaching that had been given that day. And she said she had a storage locker. And um, I have a storage locker. Probably some of you do too um, with lots of stuff in it, right? And she said she was there one day and she was walking in the building. I'm assuming she has an interior locker. And she was walking in the building and her particular unit was at the end of the row. And as she's walking to her locker, it was dark. But every step she made, a light came on. She just kept walking. The closer she got to her locker, the greater she was able to see. And then she said, the Lord spoke to me and he said, that's how I am. I give you the amount of light that you need when you need it. Isn't that awesome? He said, I give you the amount of light that you need when you need it. And I thought about this too, that if God told us everything that he had for us, many of us would draw back because we would think about our inability to fulfill what he's spoken to us. Or we would run ahead of him and try to do what he said we will do without him. So he gives us the measure of light that we need when we need it. Isn't that awesome? And so I, um, I thought about that. And then I heard another analogy, and it was a little bit different, but it was about car lights. You know, have you ever driven on a dark, dark road? I'm from the country. And I remember nine years old, we moved from a little rural area in Virginia to the big city of Richmond, Virginia. And there were street lights there. My little town didn't have any street lights. When it got dark, it was very dark. And I didn't know that until I moved to the city, though. You know, I was used to that. That's all I had ever known. And I remember going back and visiting my grandmother and thinking, I can't see my hand in front of my face without the light. Car lights are like that, too. And when you are in a really dark place, you can turn on the bright light, right? And it'll give you some vision as you approach the next, you know, destination. But the Bible says Jesus is our light. He's always there. He's always on time. And so as I began to think about what I believe the Lord was giving me to share today, and he does that, you know, like he'll give me a little bit 
and then he'll reinforce that with something else, and then he'll reinforce that with something else. I thought about um, experiences of men and women in the Bible and how God demonstrated that he was with them and the gratitude that they expressed for that. And I have a, just a few examples that I want to share with you. I want to begin with Abraham. We all know his story. He was given a command to leave his country and his family and go into a land that he had never known before. And because he was a man of faith, he went. But you know what? He also went in disobedience because he took family with him that he wasn't supposed to take. But God was with him. God was with him. Um, you know, he was even disobedient in presenting his wife as his sister. But God was with him, right? Um, and I guess I've thought about Abraham because one couple of things. One of the things I know about him is that God made a covenant with him that, that he had never made with another man. And he said he would bless him, and he would bless his seed. So even though Abraham erred, God was with him. You know, even though he missed it, and he missed it right away. You know, God said go, he gave him instructions, and then he took family that he wasn't supposed to. How many times has God given us a word, and he says do this or do that, and we do it in our own way. And then we wonder, well, what happened? But you know what? When our hearts are right, he forgives us, and he sets us back on the right path. That's what he did with Abraham. The next person that came to me was Joseph. That story can be found in Genesis 37. Joseph was a dreamer. We all know that. And the biggest problem he had was he couldn't keep his dreams to himself right? He told his brothers, and it caused extreme jealousy, right? And we know the story. He, um, his father sent him out to the field to check on his brothers, and they're scheming how they're going to get rid of him, because they don't like him very much, because he's got a big head, you know? He thinks he's better than us. And so they plot the scheme to actually, they want to kill him. And I had a couple questions as I was reading um, that scripture. Did you ever wonder why um, Jacob didn't send his sons back out to look for Joseph? Did you ever think, when you read that story, did you ever think about that? Why did he accept the report that those boys brought back home? He knew the nature of his sons. Did you ever think, I wonder why the one brother who wanted to save him, Reuben, decided to do that? Did you ever think, why was Reuben the one? That, do you think, well, he was just a good guy? 
Some would suggest that maybe Reuben just wanted to appear good so he could get back into his dad's good graces. But as we get on in the story, um, they throw him in a pit. He's taken out of the pit. He goes to the palace. He's given a position of um, authority and, and power. And a couple of the words that stand out to me that he had the grace to do good. God gave him the grace to excel and do good in whatever he did. And one of the things I like about him, you never, I never see this in that story. If you find it, show it to me. But I never saw a place where he complained. You know? So he go, he's in the palace, then he's in the prison, right? Because um, his master's wife accuses him of wanting to be with her, which was a lie. He gets in prison, he's there, he interprets the dream for the butler and the butcher, I mean the butler and the baker, and um, he says, don't forget me when you leave. Well, one of them died, the other one went back to the palace, and two years, he forgot him. But never does the scripture say he complained. I think about that sometimes. How much do we complain? How much do we forget the goodness of God and that he's always with us? I want you to remember this woman walking through that locker and the light coming on. The other thing is, when you go to the grocery store now and you're in the frozen food aisle, don't you notice that that happens? It, the windows are dark, but as you get closer, the light comes on. Let that remind you that's how close God is to you. He's just one step ahead of you. And he knows exactly what you need when you need it. So Joseph is left in prison two years. And then they remember him. But he never, ever complains. He finds grace. He finds mercy in the house of Pharaoh. In Genesis 45, the story continues because his brothers come to Egypt. And that's a fascinating story to me because he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him at all. Why? Because he's taken on the look of that particular culture, right? They don't know him, and he's, he's grown up. I think it's estimated that he was there, separated from his brothers and his father, for about 22 years. So he was, he was all grown up. And his dad was still lamenting him. And he recognizes his brothers. And you all know this story, so I'm not going to recount the whole thing. But he, they sent, he sends them away with goods. They get accused of stealing stuff that they didn't steal because he put it with, in their package with them. Then they come back, and they want, he wants them to bring the younger brother, Benjamin, um, and their dad, you know. And then there's this moment when Joseph decides, it's time for me to reveal to my brothers who I am. And it says that he sent all of the people that worked with him, all of the Egyptians, he sent them out. But they could hear him crying. They didn't know why he was crying. Only he knew why he was crying. Not even his brothers understood. And then he said to them, I am Joseph your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And I love this part. He says, now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God sent, sent me before you to preserve life. God was with him. Who would have known that his whole, I mean, I wonder when I think about this story, did he have an intuitive knowledge of what God was going to do? I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Sometimes we can get a sense, you know, how God is moving and how he's directing us. But there are other times where you don't know until you get there. You know, you, you follow and you follow and you follow. But did he, did he possibly have some um, inner knowing of what God was doing? But that, he had faith. Yeah, I believe so too. He had faith. He says, for these two years... Have the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall be neither um, earning nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you um, and your prosperity um, in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. I was thinking, you know, even as we were praying for Israel, we know that that's God's chosen people. I tell you, I, I don't think anything, I love what uh, Ronnie prayed. It's like, I know we, we pray for them because God tells us to pray for them and to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But, you know, this is a wonderful time for us to be alive, to see what our God does. He loves Israel. Now, he wants to expose the wickedness, but he loves Israel. So we shouldn't faint we should know in our knower that God is with Israel. And if he's with Israel, he's with the church. Because we're his. Amen? So, and we can be grateful for that. Amen. The next person I want to talk about is good old Jonah. Y'all remember Jonah? <laughs> God gave him some specific instruction to go to Nineveh. Now, Jonah was a devout Jew. He did not like the people in Nineveh. He did not want God's grace to be extended to them at all. He really didn't. He did not have a heart for them. And so he went to Tarshish, right? And he entered a, sh a ship with some men, and a storm came up. And the guys, I mean, I thought they must have had some great wisdom because they thought, wait a minute, what is causing the storm? And it came down to Jonah, and they threw him off the ship. Yeah, that's what the story says, right? And he went down into the deep and ended up in the belly of a fish. Well, I bet you he was calling for some grace then. How many times have we been in the deep? We cry out for the grace and the mercy, right? We cry out for the help. Lord, help me, you know? But you know, as, I, as you read the story, you realize that he really hadn't repented. He just wanted out of the belly. So God allows the whale to, or the fish to, to vomit him out. God gives him a second command to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to do it. 
how many times have we gotten a second command and we didn't want to do it? But God says, I want you to do it. So he goes to Nineveh and I'm, got, need to, I'm sorry, I got to find my place here. But he says, um, let me find this because I think it's really important. Um, Thank you, Lord. Okay, so again, um, the commandment of God came to Noah. Arise and go unto Nineveh, that great city, the city, the great city, and preach unto them the preaching that I bid thee. But he was still rebellious. And he went to that city, and he spoke, um, he spoke, I think, four or five words and it said, he said, this is what he said to Nineveh. Yet 40 days, and none of us shall be overthrown. Basically, what he said, he, he was saying to them that if you don't get your act together in 40 days, you're going to be wiped out. You, it's going to be, that, but that's all he said. He didn't say anything about grace. He didn't say anything about repent. He just said, you're going to be destroyed, right? And so as we read the story, what we know is that even the king there decided to repent. He called the fast. He said to the people, we're, we're going to repent. And God forgave them. He saved, I think, they, I think the scripture says it was like maybe 6,000 people or so there. Well, other versions say another number, but maybe 6,000. He saved Nineveh. But Jonah is still upset. Because he thought, okay, now remember, he just got out of the whale's belly. He did not want Nineveh to be delivered. He did not. So it says in the scripture that he goes to a, a place where he can kind of where he can see over the city and see what happens. This is before they get delivered. And God allows this bush to grow up so that he can have shade. And he's sitting up there on the shade, and he's waiting for the judgment to come, and the judgment doesn't come. It says that that bush grew up in one night. Then God, in the next day, he caused the bush to die. So Jonah didn't have any covering. And you know what? He was more concerned about that bush, or whatever that thing was that grew, than he was for the individuals in Nineveh. Church, is that us today? Ouch. How concerned are we, myself included, are concerned about the souls that are out there that need salvation, but yet we want the grace of God in our lives. God forgive us. May we not be like Jonah's. But God, God dealt with him. And I believe by the time we get to the end of the book, he's gotten it right. You know? He understands the, for, the grace of God. He was more concerned about his own comfort than he was the souls. And the scripture says it has something, it says something about, you know, 
the babies and the children who couldn't tell right from wrong. God's heart of compassion was for them. It was for those who didn't, had maybe never heard a word that God is God, you know? You know, we have missionaries going to India. Some of those people have never heard the gospel. They've never had, they've never had the privilege of hearing the gospel. But we're sending them out. They're going out, and they're going to be souls, one. And like um, Pastor's words said, as they reap, we will reap, you know? As souls are, are one there, souls, I mean, we got to expect that. We got to see that. We got to know that it's so. So I just challenge you today that we have to know that God is with us. Like when we're out in the marketplace and you get that nudge that you're supposed to say something to somebody, and it may not be the salvation message at that particular time, but it may be just to give somebody a smile. Tell them, God loves you. Even when you give them the little money on the corners, let them know, this, this money didn't come from me. It came from my father. God loves you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to have a better life. And if the door opens, you say more. You know, we don't want to be, have a heart like Jonah had. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I just wrote a note in my note. God is with every nation and people who will recognize their sin and repent and call upon his name. You know, he wants, he loves people. He loves his creation and his heart is toward them. The next person I'd like to talk about is David. We all know that he grew up as a shepherd tending flock in sheep and flock in his father's um, house. As a man, David hid in caves and mountains to escape the fury of Saul. Just imagine with me young David walking along a hot, stony path carrying uh, a wounded, um, maybe, animal uh, who has been injured. But he's, 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 he's always watching because he knows if he's out there in the wilderness too long, he could be snatched up by a wild animal. I love David, and I love the songs because can you imagine this young shepherd boy? He's tending the flock. He may have a a sheep or lamb or something on his back. He's going back to the cave. And he may be tired. He may be weary. Sometimes we get there. But it says he looks up to the hills and he says, my strength doesn't come from that mountain. My strength comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen? And sometimes we get down and we get weighed and look up, <laughs> look up. Look up to the mountain. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but recently, if you look out at the clouds, they have been gorgeous. They've been so blue. I mean, it just seems like the heavens are full, with, full of clouds, and they're just so beautiful. And sometimes it even feels like you can touch them. Have you ever been on a plane, and you're above the clouds, and you look down, and you think, 
how great our God is. You know, God, and he's with us. He's right there with us, and he sees us enjoying his nature. David said, my help doesn't come from the mountain, but the maker of heaven and earth. Hallelujah. Oh, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mm. I can imagine that David said, I know that God is ultimately in control of my life. I know that God can create good even from rotten situations. I know that God can even turn stupid mistakes around and make for me a better tomorrow. We can say the same things. The next person I want to talk about is Daniel. It comes out of the book of Daniel. And um, I won't belabor this because, again, you know the story. But the three Hebrew boys, you know, they were dedicated to their God. And here Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm the great God. Build a statue and bow down and worship me. So he builds a statue and he decrees a time where all the kingdom is to come and worship him. And he's looking over his kingdom and he sees, you know, just herds of people just bow down and they're worshiping the statue. And all of a sudden, he notices these three people that aren't bowing down. And he goes, wait a minute, those are the Hebrew boys. We, we, we've trained them. We've, we've taught them in our way. You know, they're educated, but they're not bowing down. Now, part of him had to be impressed with their integrity, right? Why aren't they? But out of his pride, he said, no, mm -mm. I'm the God, right? So he has them thrown into a fiery furnace. But his pride still got him because he wanted to see what happened to him. And he went and he looked and he said, I see a fourth man that has the appearance of the son of God. He is always with us, even in the fire, <laughs> even in the storm. He is always with us. And we know from the end of the story, it says he, they came out and their garments weren't even singed, right? They didn't even smell of smoke. Let me tell you, people, whatever you may be going through, you're going to come through it. And you're going to be better when you get through it. Because God's going to let you know who he is to you. He's a great God. He's a mighty God. All I say is get to know him. Amen. Bless you, Jesus. <clears throat> Bless you, Lord. Hallelujah. Two little stories I'd like to share with you again. Um, some of you may be familiar with this one. There was a man, his name was Horatio, I think it's Sparford. 
He was a businessman in Chicago. You know that name, Pastor Dave? You probably do. You'll know it when I get to the end of this. Um, He and his family were going on a voyage. And this was in the 1800s. They were going on a voyage. And he couldn't go with his family. So he sent his wife, Anna, and their four children ahead of him. And he tended his business. And I think it was on the day he was getting ready to um, leave and join them. He got um, like a... I guess it would be like a Western Union or something like that. Telegram, yeah. And on it, it said, I alone survived. And what he found out was that the ship that his wife and four daughters were on had collided with another ship. She had taken the children and put them in one of those little lifeboats. But by the time help came, All four girls had died. Do you know what this man did? He began on his journey to get to her, pinned. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And I wrote down some of the words to that hymn. It says, um, When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrow like sea billows swell he was in a place of sorrow um and i can't remember all the words right now but yes thank you whatever my lot thou has taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul and you know we have to get to that place this man had lost all of his children. I can't imagine that. You know, he, and he wasn't with them. It was nothing he could do, you know. But his heart was, he knew, what he, one thing he knew is that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he would see, he and his wife would see their children again and that he had to continue the work that he was doing. And he said, whatever my lot God, you've taught me that it is well, it is well with my soul. And sometimes we have to say that to ourselves. You know, I don't know if you've ever been at a place where you're just so distressed and you think you can't make it, you know. I mean, it could be from physical illness. It could be from financial situations. I mean, I've shared with you guys a story with one time in my life where I had to go to a bank and sell not sell, but exchange savings bonds that I had gotten for my daughter because I, we needed money and I did, we didn't have it. I didn't have it. And I remember standing at the teller window, tears streaming down my eyes because I felt like, you're, I mean, I felt like a poor parent. But even as I left, I had to know, God, it is well. It is well with my soul. And God provided. That was just a tool that I had. Thank God I had those you know, that I could exchange for money. But at that moment, it didn't feel like that. It felt like failure. But even in our failure, we can say it is well. It is well with our soul. The the last person I want to tell you about, and this one is an interesting one. His name is Nick 
Wall, Wallinda, I think. And you know that name? He and his family were tight walkers. But I didn't know this about him. He started training as a young child, and apparently what would happen is that the tightrope was very low, and as he got more, he got better, they would raise the tightrope, raise the tightrope. Well, one of his biggest feats um, was in 2012, when he was 1,800 feet suspended above Niagara Falls. How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? Do you want to be over that and walking on a tightrope? No way. But you know what? You know what he did as he's walking? He's walking, and I don't even know if I can walk a straight line without a tightrope, but he's walking, and he's saying, Jesus, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you that you guide. And he did this. I thank you that you guide my feet. And he walked all the way across on a tightrope. Hallelujah. God was with him. Now, none of us will be required to do anything like that. But sometimes in life, things get a little wobbly, you know, and you feel like you're on a tightrope. But we have to know that God is with us. Amen. You know, I'm not sure, Lord. Um, I have one last thing I want to leave with you in closing. Um, and this is just maybe a tool that you can use to help you stay mindful of the fact that God is with you. Um, one of the major hindrances to us in believing God is our thinking. And often that's where we hit roadblocks. And Philippians 4.8 has the answer for us when we hit a roadblock. Four, uh, 4 and 8, it says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things instead of letting your mind be on autopilot. That was added. <laughs> we have to take control of our minds. And I don't know about you, but sometimes mine is very active and it's hard to shut off, <clears throat> especially if I'm stressed. Anybody can bear witness to that? I won't look. <laughs> yeah, that's who said that? Tired. Yeah, if you're tired too, yeah. Okay. So I wanted you to just take a little little journey with me. Because this is gonna, I hope, be something that you will remember and can use to help when your thinking gets a little off. Sometimes I've said to the Lord, God, I've got stinking thinking. You gotta help me. You know, because I know it's not right, but I can't like shake it. And Isabel said to us, you know, um, she said, uh, I think it was during prophetic class, you know, people were asking about, well, you know, like, you know, how do you how do you tell whether your dreams are in your flesh or they're led by the spirit or, you know, like when you pray, like she said, when you 
even when you get down to pray, y'all know how this happens. You say, okay, I'm going to pray. And you get down to pray, or you sit down to pray, and then close your eyes, and immediately, everything that you need to think about comes to your mind. And we try to get it out of our minds, but it won't go. She said, let it be. She said, let it be. And then if you give it a, you know, like a little bit of time, it'll just go away. And then you can enter into your prayer time. I thought that was so rich because I don't know how many times I beat myself up because like, Lord, I mean, I want to pray, but my mind is just full of stuff. Another tool, I guess, is just to write down that stuff so you can get it out of your head. But anyway, this is another one. Um, we have to spend our time um, um, thinking on things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Okay, so I want you to, and if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes, but you don't have to do that. This is not any ooh kind of stuff, but just like maybe a visualization or using your imagination. Think of a glass jar, and it's got, it's full of, um, clear water, and you have some red food dye, and you put a couple drops in it, and what happens is it starts to go to the bottom of the jar, and when it gets to the bottom, it kind of springs open like that, and the water becomes red. That's our mind, and the explosion in the bottom is our busyness and the stress and the anxiety, right? Well, how do you get that bread out of the jar? How do you get the bread out of the jar? How do you get the thoughts out of your mind? Some would say, just empty, jar, empty the jar and fill it again with clean water. But we already know it's not that easy to empty the mind, right? Again, see the jar. It's red in color. You're going to take a picture, and you're going to begin to fill that jar with clear water. And don't worry about the water spilling out. We got something under it to catch it, okay? Because some people's minds will go there, and you won't even hear what I'm saying. And just keep filling it and filling it and filling it. You know, I think about, you know, have you, ladies who wash dishes. I said, I, notice I said wash dishes, not the dishwasher washing, but... Okay, you wash your dishes. Have you ever had a, a cup or a glass and you're rinsing it and you think you got all the soap out, but you realize you don't? What's the best way to get it out? You fill it up with water and let it all come out, right? So this is the idea. So just keep filling that jar with clear water. And eventually what will happen is all that red will come out. But you know that's a process, right? It takes a little bit of time. And eventually, that jar will be clear again. That's how we can, when we think on things that are pure and lovely and kind and of a good report, clear our minds. And know that no matter what situation we're in, God is with us. And we can and are grateful. God bless you. <laughs>